Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. I'll tell you the joke that my sister made up, all right? Okay. Knock, knock. Who's there? Tickle. Tickle who? Tickle Rico! <laughs> I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newman, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from actress and writer Zoe Kazan, the punchline of which was indeed her tickling me. That'll help break the ice with someone who doesn't mind being tickled by a stranger. <laughs> Uh, we will speak with Zoe later about her new film, Ruby Sparks. Also coming up, three-time Olympic medalist Sean Johnson does not tickle me, mm-hmm. but gets us behind the scenes of that big sports event happening this week in London, and the band Passion Pit suggests some tunes. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. In the Midwest, the drought is doing a number on corn. The president of Chick-fil-A has taken a very public stand against same-sex marriage. The U.S. women's soccer team defeated France 4-2. to two. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Amber Bravo. She is the deputy editor of The Fader, which is a culture magazine. Amber, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about Snoop Dogg's new persona, Snoop Lion. Snoop Lion. <laughs> he switched mammals. From a dog to a lion and a Rastafarian. Really? Is that um, so that's yeah, the shift? Yeah, it, it's a reggae album, actually. Oh, I guess not Clearly. surprising given his... His hobbies. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, you need to choose the appropriate animal totem for the genre. Yeah, I that guess. feels more reggae. I can yeah. see that. Um, but Lion has nothing to do with Snoop. Like, Snoop at least had to do with Snoopy, which was a dog. Snoop and Lion, they barely make sense together. This is going to destroy pop music's legacy of extremely logical names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, the, the title change made me um, want to look at some other bands and what they used to be called, their former selves. Oh, this is fun. Um, so we have Radiohead used to be called On a Friday, <laughs> which was the time what? of their rehearsal slot. I see. Interesting. We also also have uh, Van Halen was called Genesis um, before they realized that there was a, another wildly popular <laughs> band with the same name. They were just partying so hard they, they didn't yeah. notice there's a huge band called Genesis out there. For some reason, it doesn't surprise me that Eddie Van Halen skipped the Genesis section of the record store. He was focusing on it. He didn't get past Black Sabbath. Probably. It's true. And um, the other great one is Tony Flo and the Miraculously Majestic Masters of Mayhem. All right. Can, can you guess who that might be? Smokey Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> Close. It's actually the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh. Ah. So they actually shortened their name to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They were just really into the idea of not being able to fit their name on an album yes, cover. Yes, they were really aiming for an acronym. They were going to get it one way or another. All right. Amber Bravo, a name that fits easily on the fader's masthead. Thanks for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history and give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our barrel-aged history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1940, Bugs Bunny was officially born. Now your party guests will have heard of Bugs, assuming they're from planet Earth. Michelle Phillippe is here with some details they might not know. At first, Bugs Bunny was just your standard wascally wabbit. The year was 1938, and Warner Brothers released the cartoon Porky's Hare Hunt. It introduced the classic Bugs Bunny plotline, Hunter hunts rabbit, rabbit drives Hunter insane. 
but the rabbit didn't look or sound like today's Bugs Bunny. <laughs> and he didn't have a name. Still, the critter kept popping up in other Warner Brothers cartoons, including one directed by a guy named Ben Hardaway. Ben's nickname? Bugs. Folks around the studio started calling the character Bugs's Bunny. Hardaway didn't direct his namesake's official debut, though. That honor went to the legendary Tex Avery. In 1940, his Warner Brothers short, A Wild Hare, featured a Bugs Bunny that finally looked like the one we know today, uttering his signature catchphrase for the first time. What's up, Doc? It was just something folks used to say in Avery's home state of Texas. Avery didn't even think it was all that funny, but audiences did. The short was a hit, and Bugs Bunny was a star. Which maybe isn't surprising, since Bugs's fast-talking attitude was based on another star, Clark Gable. Specifically, a scene in the movie, It Happened One Night, in which Gable, gnawing on a carrot, tells Claudette Colbert how to hitchhike. I wish you wouldn't talk so much. I would let a car get away. Suppose nobody stops for it, huh? They'll stop, all right. It's all a matter of knowing how to hail them. And I'm going to write a book about it. Call it The Hitchhiker's Hail. Bugs may have swiped his speech patterns from Gable, but he proved himself a way harder worker. According to last year's Guinness records, he's been in over 220 movies, more than any other cartoon character in film history, including that mouse with the red pants was his name. So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. I am speaking with Boyan Dimitrov. He is bartender here at Dimples in Burbank, California. It is uh, in a building across the street from Warner Brothers that has been here since 1939. Boyan, what drink did that story inspire you to make? I'm making a drink called the Rabbit Ears after Bugs Bunny. Of course. What? Uh, d- by the way, do, do any like animators from Warner Brothers come in here? Yeah, they come in here from Warner Brothers and from all around the studios around here. And they, but they, the funny part about them is they can't stop drawing. So they come in here and they start chatting. Next thing they're like, "Well, let me draw you this picture because it's so like cool to have a picture from these animators." You amazing. must have like the best cocktail napkin leftovers in Hollywood. You're absolutely right. Yes, just drawing things on napkins on like anything. All right, well, maybe this is something you can serve them. What is in the uh, the Rabbit Ears cocktail? Okay, I start off with a little bit of ice, of course. Because Bugs Bunny is cool. Vanilla vodka. Why vanilla vodka? It's just sweet and nice, you know? That's how Bugs Bunny feels on the inside. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He only ever attacks people who are trying to kill him, after all. That's right. He's a peaceful bunny. But if you get in his way, then it's all over. All right, and then? I splash a little bit of lime juice for a little citrus. Okay. And you are opening up some carrot juice. Some carrot juice. <laughs> of course. Right now it's looking nice and orange. And you top it off with a little bit of apple pucker. Elmer Foot always eats apples and Bugs Bunny eats carrots, so. I never noticed that Elmer Sometimes eats apples. His head kind of looks like an apple too, so that's perfect. There you go, yes. All right, uh, I'm gonna take a sip of this thing. Oh, that's kind of cool. Really? I expected it to be a little more vegetable-y, but it's actually like a pleasantly sweet, mildly sweet. Yeah. Almost too mild for Bugs Bunny. I think to like really make it Warner Brothers, you should toss in like a cherry bomb or something. Just a big explosive ending. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So Rico, that drink sounded really nice. It was actually. It's very summery, refreshing. But with the carrot juice in there, I couldn't help but think of, you know, how in those old Bugs Bunny cartoons, yeah. at some point someone would try to make 
you know, a big cauldron of soup, inevitably. <laughs> With and fire it, under it. Yeah, and it always consisted of water, carrots, and Bugs Bunny. Yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible recipe. It's a terrible soup. Yeah. What was up with, with that? fur on him. But, <laughs> you know, Bugs' enemies were mainly hunters. They weren't chefs. Yeah, but so they weren't even good hunters. They obviously. Well, they tried. Folks, our cocktail recipes are quite good. You can find them all at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is essayist Sloane Crosley. Her best-selling collection, I Was Told There'd Be Cake, is soon to be an HBO series. Last winter, she gave us a list of her favorite travel-themed art, it being summer travel season. We thought we'd take a trip back in time to hear it again. Hello, my name is Sloane Crosley. I just released an essay called Up the Down Volcano, and it's about me taking a misguided and poorly informed trip up a active volcano in South America. Here is a list of pop culture-esque things that were burned in my brain about travel. Um, and not really travel so much as adventure. The first one, book-wise, has to be Edgar Dreams. A lot of people, uh, if they know of John Krakauer, which I assume they do, they know of Into Thin Air or Into the Wild. He has sold many, many books. But Edgar Dreams, which is a collection of all of his sort of serious hardcore mountain climbing uh, essays, is really his secretly, I think, most extreme adventure story. He talks about climbing the Devil's Thumb in Alaska. He was thoroughly unprepared, and so it's a lot about the sort of hubris of, of youth and, and man versus nature. This is what I remember from that book, is the only thing he had with him when he was sort of trapped on this mountain alone and had just set fire to his tent was uh, Joan Didion's The Book of Common Prayer. Just the worst depressing, lonely book. I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> Aside from the frostbite in the eye, you know, that's not good either. The second thing, a movie that's really stuck in my brain about travel and... Um, is Lost in Translation, which is a little less death-defying than Edgar Dreams, unless you count Tokyo hostess clubs and karaoke as being, you know, at risk to your health. And the scenes that really stick with me when I think about traveling, especially if you're in a hotel room or you're, you're alone somehow, one of them is when she calls a friend of hers back home and... The friend says, oh, my God, you know, what time is it there? And they exchange some pleasantries. And this is clearly actually a decent friend of hers. But she's trying to express how alone she is. And the friend's just not getting it. And, you know, she's just looking around her hotel room and looking around her life and thinking, I don't even have the words to describe to you what's going on right now. Hello? Lauren? Charlotte, hey. Hey. Oh, my God, how's Tokyo? It's great here. It's really great. Um... I don't know, I went to this shrine today, mm -hmm. and um, there were these monks and they were chanting, and I didn't feel anything, you know? Wait a second, just hold on, I'll be right back. Okay, sure. <laughs> and that's a common feeling in travel. It doesn't even have to be that melancholy. Sometimes it can be amazing. That's as difficult to articulate as something that's actually really not going out, turning out that well. Here's another thing. Land Down Under by Men at Work. I'm sure you know it. If you haven't heard it already once today, I'm pretty sure you're lying to me, actually. <laughs> that is the strangest song. Do you ever have songs where you're like, wow, if they only 
slowed them down and, and erased the sort of poppy beat, you'd realize how truly upsetting it is. I mean, the first line of that song is, I think it's the first line, is, I met a strange lady. She made me nervous. She took me in and made me breakfast. She took me in and gave me breakfast. And she said, do you come from a land down under? What? It's like the kidnapping theme song. Women go and men wonder. Can't you hear, can't you hear the thunder? You better run, you better take cover. I, I just remember the video so clearly because the video looks like it takes place in Africa. There's just a lot of sand and a lot of running, and it takes place everywhere. There's like Belgian references. It's groundbreaking in terms of videos about travel. It's sort of epic travel journey, and nothing strikes me as so epic just in its randomness as Land Down Under. I said, do you speak my language? The guest list from Sloan Crosley. She originally shared that list with us this past December. And, by the way, Sloan later informed us the name of the Krakauer book is actually Iger Dreams. I think Edgar Dreams may be a collection of Poe horror stories or something. I'm not <laughs> Maybe sure. Maybe they're Poe fantasies. They, I don't know. That's not appropriate for beach reading, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break. But coming up, gymnast Sean Johnson tells us what made her an Olympic champion. I don't think I've ever taken a nap. Well, there goes my gold medal. Sorry. That and more when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, former gymnast Sean Johnson reveals the shocking truth about Olympic medals. Mm. And later we sample the latest comfort food to be, quote, chefed up. If you bread it and fry it and slather it with mayonnaise, it's going to be delicious. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, this week it's actor and writer Zoe Kazan. She appeared on Broadway in the play Come Back, Little Sheba. She had a recurring role on the HBO series Bored to Death. This week she stars in the movie Ruby Sparks, directed by the makers of Little Miss Sunshine. It is a romantic dramedy Uh, if I can coin a new genre, about a lonely author who writes a story about the ideal dream bohemian girlfriend and she suddenly comes to life. Here's part of the scene where they meet. What's your dog's name? Scotty. I named him for F. Scott Fitzgerald. Who? F. Scott Fitzgerald, the novelist. I don't read a lot of fiction. Oh, he's probably one of the greatest novelists who ever lived. Naming your dog after him, it's a little disrespectful. Oh, it's a gesture. Yeah, an aggressive gesture. Think about it. You're a novelist. You think this guy's the greatest? So you name your dog after him to cut him down to size. Kill your idols, man. I'm all for it. Zoe also wrote the script. When we spoke this week, I told her I saw it as a satire about men who write about a certain kind of female character. You know the the term, the manic pixie girl? Yeah, manic pixie dream girl. This is like the ultimate refutation of that archetype. Well, the critic who coined that term, Nathan Raban, he used it sort of to talk about a certain type of girl that he was seeing in movies of this kind of quirky girl whose function is solely to release the male protagonist from themselves, essentially, to to bring them to life. Usually a a kind of dull character, dull male character gets personality from the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Yeah, I don't know. I like 
that the movie can be read is a refutation of that archetype because that archetype deserves questioning. I find that phrase to be insidious in a way. I've read it used in reference to Annie Hall and used in reference to Catherine Hepburn's character in Bringing It Baby. I think it's a way of kind of dismissing the unusual or interesting female character. Suddenly any female character that is not 100% one thing is a manic pixie dream girl and therefore dismissible. Yeah, it really bothers me. Well, I'm not sure how to label it, but your role in this movie is definitely unusual. Uh, In fact, because the character is controlled by this writer guy, she goes through these constant extremes of emotion because he makes her, basically. Really tough role. Did you know you were going to play it as he wrote it? Um, When I first got the idea, I was sort of taken by this storm of inspiration and I wrote five or ten pages all in a day and then showed it to Paul when he came home. Paul Dano, your boyfriend. Yes. And he asked if I was writing it for us. Paul Dano, by the way, I should point out, also stars in the movie as the writer who controls your character. Yes, indeed. Um, You know, once he said it, I felt like, oh, that's exactly what I'm doing. But then I kind of had to put it out of my head while I was writing the rest of it because I didn't want any vanity to get in the way. I didn't want to be thinking about how will this make me look? How can I help Paul by giving him a better role to play? I just didn't want to be thinking about those things while I was writing. I kind of am impressed that it's you realized early on that you were writing something for you and your boyfriend to act in, in which you play a boyfriend and girlfriend, and that didn't immediately give you pause. It should have given me pause. <laughs> it should have given me pause. People said to me we were crazy for doing it, because um, I don't think the statistics are particularly good. But yeah. I will say that some of my favorite collaborations have been collaborations between people who were romantically involved, whether it be like... Woody Allen with any number of women or um, <laughs> Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn or, you know, Jenna Rollins and John Cassavetes. I, but it was so much harder than I thought it was going to be. It was very easy actually doing the work, but it's hard to spend that much time together. Most couples, I think if they're spending 24 hours of a day together, they're on their honeymoon. Not working intimately. Not, yes. You know, we would fight about things like who got to choose what was on the radio on the drive home, who got to drive, what we were going to have for dinner, who gets to shower first. I hope that the bickering part happened during the part of the filming where your character and he are actually bickering. The worst fight we had the whole time happened when we shot the like happy date stuff. We got in the hugest fight on the drive there and then had to like go make out. It looked like we were having a great time off screen. I was so at him we'd be like fighting in the car slam the doors and then we'd be like oh hey maddie how's it going yeah everything's good the car was like its own private black hole war zone so you're definitely going to do it again (laughs) i would do it again in a heartbeat i just would get separate cars perfect Something actually, since we're talking about these relationship issues here, something I really admire about this movie is that it could very easily be a very angry diatribe against men and the way they kind of look at women. I mean, we deserve it sometimes, but it isn't. It's actually really sympathetic to the way men act in relationships in a way that I think a lot of movies by men aren't. Where does that insight come from? Well, I've dated a lot of dudes. Um, No, you know, I just, we all start with the idea of a person when we're falling in love with them. All that physical chemistry tells my brain, you love this person long before I actually know who they are. And 
I think that the process of actually loving the real person, that's incredibly difficult for men and women. So there's something universal I was trying to talk about that is not gender specific. And then there is this other gender specific thing where, I mean, I also have really, really strong female friendships and it is hard to be in a female friendship. Women are tricky and... You don't have to be in a romantic relationship to feel befuddled by by females. We have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? I'm tired of being asked about my family. Is that what you predicted? Absolutely. Your, yeah. your grandfather, of course, was Ilya Kazan, the, you know, considered by many to be one of the greatest stage and film directors ever. Yes. Um, the end. No, you know... Every time I talk about this, I sound like I'm really defensive, and I, I don't mean it that way. I just, and I've had people ask me it who do have a motive, who want to hate on him because of the HUAC stuff, or... He named names during the uh, McCarthy era. Yes, or you think you're going to learn something about me by asking this, but it figures very small in my, in, my, in my imagination. The only time it seems important is when people ask me about it. I'm annoyed by the question, partially because I feel like I have no answer yeah. that's going to actually be satisfying for the person asking. Well, that's why I didn't ask it. <laughs> Delightful. And then what's the other question? It is, <laughs> it is less of a question than a demand. Tell us something we don't know. Um, um, okay, so I will tell you this. I, I had like crazy ESP as a child crazy psychic as a, as a small child and I wasn't allowed to play guessing games in my um, kindergarten, first grade and second grade classes and it went away with age but I used to be like a really weird, freaky, psycho ESP child. So you could win all the guessing games at school? Yes. How upset were you when that power went away? I was not upset. I did not like it. It was not enjoyable. You know like, I don't know, you know the movie Unbreakable when he's touching people and he can like see all the bad they did. That's like, uh, Bruce Willis's character. Yes. I saw that movie and I was like, oh, that's sort of what it was like. I used to just receive pictures from people and sometimes they would be like really upsetting. You, do you think that informs your writing to some extent? I mean, like maybe this is why you understand men so well. Maybe it is. I definitely think so. I think I'm like, I'm used to receiving weirdo pictures in my brain. And Brendan, I hope it came across. Zoe was just a very fun person to be around. I yeah, to she totally seems like it. In fact, uh, on my way out, we yeah. shook hands, and she was uh-huh. like, "I see your co-host exploding into flames," <laughs> and we had a, we had a good laugh. That's pretty fun. Oh my god! And now, time to eavesdrop. We're still live. Author Charles Yu writes stories that combine science fiction with dry humor and melancholy. His first collection, Third Class Superhero, won the National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 Award. This week, he releases his new collection, Sorry Please Thank You. Today, we overhear him reading a dinner party-worthy excerpt. Hi, my name is Charles Yu. My new book is called Sorry Please Thank You. Here's the beginning of the first story, Standard Loneliness Package. I feel pain for money other people's pain. Physical, emotional, you name it. Root canal is 150, give or take, depending on who's doing it to you. A migraine is 200. Not that I get the money. The company gets it. What I get is $12 an hour, plus reimbursement for painkillers. Not that they work. Pain is an illusion, I know, and so is time, I know, I know. The shift manager never stops reminding us. It doesn't help, actually. 
It doesn't help when you're on your third broken leg of the day. I get to work three minutes late and already there are nine tickets in my inbox. I close my eyes, take a deep breath, open the first ticket of the morning. I'm at a funeral, feeling grief, someone else's grief, like wearing a stranger's coat, still warm with heat from another body. I hear crying, I'm seeing crying faces, pretty faces, nice clothes. Our services aren't cheap. There's a place in Hyderabad doing what we're doing, but a little more toward the budget end of things. Precision Living Solutions, it's called. And of course, there are hundreds of emotional engineering firms here in Bangalore. I read in the paper that a new call center opens once every three weeks. Workers follow the work and the work is here. All of us ready to feel, to suffer. We're in a growth industry. The body's going in the ground now. The crying is getting more serious. Here it comes. I'm feeling that feeling, the one that these people get a lot near the end of a funeral service. It's a big feeling. Different operators have different ways to describe it. For me, it feels something like a huge boot. Huge, like it fills up the whole sky, the whole galaxy, all of space. Some kind of infinite foot. And it's stepping on me. The infinite foot is stepping on my chest. Deepak, who used to be in the next cubicle, once told me that this feeling I call the infinite foot, to him it felt more like a knee, is actually the American experience of the Christian God. Are you sure it's the Christian God? I asked him. I always thought God was Jewish. You're an idiot, he said. It's the same guy, the Judeo-Christian God. Are you sure? I said. He just shook his head at me. We'd had this conversation before. I figured he was probably right. Deepak was the smartest guy in our cube cluster as he would kindly remind me several times a day. I endure a few more minutes of the foot, and then, right before the hour's up, right when the grief and guilt are almost too much, and I wonder if I'm going to have to hit the safety button, there it is. It's usually there at the end of a funeral, no matter how awful, no matter how hard I'm crying, no matter how much guilt my client has saved up for me to feel. You wouldn't expect it, I didn't, but anyone who has done this job for long enough knows what I'm talking about. And even though you know it's coming, even though you are, in fact, waiting for it, when it comes, it is always still a shock. Relief. Award-winning author Charles Yu, reading from his new collection of stories, Sorry, Please, Thank You. And you are listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media possibly on behalf of someone else. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something that we don't, so if the topic comes up in conversation later, we can hold our own. This week, the topic is the Olympics. They begin this weekend. Our teacher is former Olympian Sean Johnson. She was the 2008 Olympic balance beam gold medalist and all-around and floor exercise silver medalist. And she has a new book out called Winning Balance. Sean, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. What are some of the things that the viewing audience might not know about behind the scenes in the Olympics? Yeah, well, you can imagine it's it's the most intense competition that these athletes will, will be in in their entire life. So you can kind of feel the intensity. You can feel the nerves. It's almost a little bit high-strung, but the coolest part that I don't think you know, anybody gets to see is the Olympic Village, you know, walking around, you've got some of the top, top athletes of the entire world. 
And when they're at such an elite level, they kind of get alienated by everybody. And when they're at the Olympic Village, the the coolest part is you just relate and you can connect to everybody. So Mm. whether you're a swimmer or a gymnast, they know that you went through the same thing so they can connect. And it's a really kind of comforting feeling. So, But is everyone really competitive? Do people like race to the showers and to the water fountain and stuff (laughs) like that? (laughs) Oh, not really. Let's talk about the competition itself a little bit. Are there any rituals that you participated in beforehand or you witnessed your competitors perform? Oh my goodness. You see so many different rituals and good luck charms and superstitions. People can't wear a certain color and they have to (laughs) They go from the bathroom to the living room, back to the bathroom to the kitchen before they walk really? out the door. And <laughs> oh wow. yeah, everybody has their things. But um, I didn't really believe in those. I tried to not have any of that kind of stuff, so it didn't like affect me mentally. But I do remember the one thing that I had a hard time with was I had I used to put ribbon in my hair, and mm-hmm. I had a gold and I had a silver ribbon that I could choose from. And for some reason, I just could not get myself to wear the silver. So. I think I think we all know what that reason is, right? Yeah, probably. I saw an interview where you did kind of discussed, um, someone asked you, what's the best part about deciding to retire? And you said the best part was no more pain, like physical pain. Talk to me about that. When we're watching Olympians, are they in pain a, a lot of the time? I'd say 99% of the time. I think that's wow. something that kind of, you know, separates elite athletes and Olympic athletes from the rest is we train so hard and so long and learned that pain is part of it. Yeah. Uh, I remember during training, it got to a point to where you almost forget the difference between pain and normal because pain becomes your normal. So athletes are simultaneously in perfect health and in constant agony. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you you should watch it. It's interesting. Look very closely when you watch the Olympics. And if you see tape, if you see braces, if you see anything, that's because of pain and that's because of injury. And um, you'll be surprised. You'll see it on... 99% of the, the athletes out there. And if they don't have it, it it's still there. Wow. Well, this justifies my decision to to have a radio show about drinking cocktails and, and interviewing <laughs> smart people. So I'm really good at napping. If, the, if When that makes it into the Olympics, I, I think I'll enter for our hey, country. that is a good thing to be <laughs> able to do. I'm, I'm pretty good. If you ever want tips, I, I, I offer training. Okay. I might need it. I don't think I've ever <laughs> taken a nap. So, so you, you took home three medals. Is there anything surprising about the medal itself that only someone who's received a medal would know? Like, like is it heavy? I don't I know. Mean, is it, it is, is I mean, it, yes, it's kind of heavy. They, they alter and change every four years. So the design oh. of it is different for every Olympics. Okay. Um, is it um, solid? Is it real? Is it no. Solid? It's <laughs> no. not. Really? It's gold-plated, yeah. You think of all the medals in the world, the gold medal of the Olympics would be an actual gold medal. That's maddening. You'd think so. I mean, that'd be pretty (laughs) cool. But But I guess if you win a gold medal and you're finally standing there, you can't be like, what? This is all I get? Yeah, I think I'd be okay with like a ribbon or something. (laughs) It's the whole, you know, just idea of it. Sure. What is it like the day it's over? Now, not the moment, not the following day, like when you were still in Beijing, but what is it like the day you get back home and you unpack? Do you remember that moment? Yeah, it's kind of like hitting a brick wall when you train your whole life for something where when every, you know, decision you make on a daily basis is revolved around the Olympics or around your training mm-hmm. and you get home and you no longer have that. It's kind of like you're three years old again and just I didn't know what to do. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know what to eat. I didn't know how late to sleep in. I didn't 
know how to go about working out because I didn't have to work out. I mean, it was definitely confusing. I think a lot of athletes go into like, you know, post-Olympic depression or something (laughs) because they just have to figure things out. See, this is where my Olympic nap training would come in handy. (laughs) So, Rico, although I made reference to my napping prowess, yes. I have to admit, I was banned from competitive napping oh my gosh. after testing positive for performance-enhancing drugs. <laughs> wow, steroids help you nap. Red wine. It was red wine. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I was going to fight the charge, but it just seemed, you know, too exhausting. Yeah, surprising. <laughs> uh, folks, coming up, we sample the new hamburger. The band Passion Pit suggests some party tunes, and Emily Post's great-great-grandchildren answer your etiquette questions. <clears throat> All that and more when the dinner party returns. Brendan, did you just fall asleep? Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I am Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we find out how chefs are chefing up fish sandwiches. And Michael Angelakos of the band Passion Pit suggests a soundtrack for a dinner party for two. That's my favorite kind. There's less dishwashing. Yes, but first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week are two guests who are actually qualified to do so. Mm. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senig, the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post herself. They help run the Emily Post Institute in lovely Vermont, and they recently released the 18th edition of their Manners Manual, Dan, Lizzie, great to have you guys back. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Has anything particularly rude happened in Vermont since we last spoke with you? Our governor got chased by bears. Oh. I don't know if that's rude. I saw that on my friend who lives in Germany's Facebook page. I didn't even see that on the local news. That's very impolite of the bears, I have to admit. Well, maybe he stepped into bear territory. Apparently there were some cubs involved. Exactly. (laughs) See, it's all about context. Don't even need an etiquette guide. All right, well, look, let's let's hop into our questions here. The first one comes from, I'm going to try to pronounce this, Naois. Does that sound right, Rico? Naois. Naois, N-A-O-I-S-E. What is the polite way to pronounce it? Oh, there we go. If you don't know how to pronounce it, Right off the bat. Just what you guys did. Try your best and admit that you're not exactly sure. All right, well, I did that. And uh, (laughs) he, she is writing from Hawaii. And the question is, is it all right to call a group of people dudes or guys when there are women in the group, mm. like, hey, guys, what's up? And so on. Colloquial usage of guys. Yeah. G- good question. It's getting asked more and more. Yeah. Uh, more formal situations, we say to defer to more correct language. When um, you're at so the estate dinner, don't say. <laughs> in business situations, if you're talking to a room that's men and women, mm-hmm. guys yeah. probably isn't the best. Not if okay. Madeline Albright is there, you can't say guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. But at the same time, if it's just a group of your friends, you walk into someone's apartment, hey, guys, what's up? No problem. Obviously, there's uh, different rules of engagement for formal and non-formal. I think the hard right. part, though, is there's things that are sort of in between where you can't quite tell, like maybe the, the night before the wedding hanging out with the mm-hmm. family? Is that a formal time? That's semi-formal. Semi- and and you, ra- <laughs> you raise a, a phenomenal point, which is that we live in times of increasing informality, increasingly casual right. culture. Making good choices in those moments when you're not exactly sure requires 
being aware of the formality from which you are departing. So ah, in that moment, to make a good what? choice, just having some <laughs> idea that you are making a choice, that there is a more right. formal option, is empowering. It helps you make better choices. We'll I, I do quickly want to ask about dudes, because I feel like this word is everywhere. <laughs> Certainly where we are. I don't think it's gender neutral. I mean, I do think it's kind of a, a man. Really? I call some <laughs> of my girlfriends dudes sometimes. I'm like, dude, come on. But I think that's for humor's sake, isn't it? And isn't that a little funny to call your, your ladies dudes? I spend a lot of time in Colorado. All right, here is question number two. This is Julia via Facebook. Is it good etiquette, she writes, to treat someone to a meal using a gift card or any other method that results in you paying less than full price? For example, treating someone for their birthday or as a thank you. So this one, I actually got taken out to New Year's this year on a gift card. But for a thank you or a birthday, I was like, huh, how would I feel about that? Mm, And in the end, I think it's none of your business how somebody is paying for your meal if they're paying for your meal. Sure. All right. Because so, they, get, they mean, could have used it on themselves, right? They could have used it on themselves. Also think of it as the kind of thing where if it's not something they could afford typically, how nice is it that they just took you out to a place that they wouldn't normally be able to go to mm. and that they wanted to share that experience with you? I think you don't look a gift card horse in the mouth. That's kind of how I feel. What do you think, Dan? I, I started to wonder if this was maybe a workaround re-gifting question. Oh. But I think it's a little different. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit with Lizzie. A point of etiquette that you might go with is that if you're the one doing the paying, you never want to make that big a deal out of mm. the paying. I would try to generally minimize the emphasis on how it is that I'm affording this or how it is that I'm paying it, if at all possible. It's incumbent upon the person not to be waving around the coupon That's true. a lot. And, <laughs> and I think you shouldn't push them around with their coupon like, oh, don't you want the Spanish fries? No, I think you do. <laughs> They're half price with this half coupon. Price. We're, we're at the end of our drink coupon, so let's wrap this one up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, look, before we let you go, I, I just we, we actually had a follow-up from one of our earlier segments. This is so you. good. Yes. This was a common from uh, Mary in Brunswick, Maine. She says, you had the post kids on for the, the post kids. Oh, we're kids. You're kids. You guys need like a post mystery machine or something. <laughs> so you had the post kids on for the etiquette lesson and the question was asked about elbows on the table. There was a question about can you put elbows on the table? And right. uh, Mary learned when touring the replica of the Bounty, which is a ship, I guess, that sailors had to eat with their elbows holding their plates on the pitching ship to keep their plates from sliding away. One hand holding their drink the other a fork, <laughs> elbows holding the plate. So mm. it was a sign of your low class and that you were a sailor if you ate with your elbows on the table. Now, really, don't you think Emily Post's <laughs> offspring should know that? Wow, snap. <laughs> I know. I forgot that I was an encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah. What I have to say to Mary is, that is awesome. And no, I've never heard anything even remotely close to that before. <laughs> and, and we hear all kinds of anecdotes. One of my favorite things about etiquette is knowing the why. That it's not just a bunch of rules right. that you do mm-hmm. because there are a bunch of rules. It's 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 fun to know the, the, the historical origins. It's fun to know the reasons. And I, I love the quest for good reasons. Um, that's not one I'm particularly familiar with. We'll have to check some other sources. They obviously hadn't heard of table fairies. <laughs> yeah, I know, because that's the, obviously the real answer. Duh. Yeah, Lizzie's mom told her if she put her elbows on the table, she would crush the table fairies. I guess, though, if I think about that, like, okay, so I'm holding my plate with my elbows. 
my glass in my right hand, my fork in my left. Yeah. I just, that seems really hard. Can you even <laughs> eat at that point? Like, yeah. No wonder it's bad etiquette. <laughs> and I'll tell you the example from no what, Emily's early bad. books. Wait, Dan, you're saying that uh, Emily Post wrote about this in one of her early books? So good. Um, she describes aristocrats at a long table, and everybody's got their elbows on the table, and they're talking and gesticulating with their silverware. So and she like describes it like clothing flapping on a, on a line outdoors, this like line of arms propped up down a table. And for her, it was this sort of uh, this, this, this casual aristocratic laziness <laughs> that she oh. was prescribing against when she said, avoid that. Don't slouch over your food and don't gesticulate with your silverware. Don't just prop your, your elbows on the table in a casual way. My suggestion is your next book should be only dealing with the question of why elbows cannot be on yes. the table. Why elbows you could discourse on, on that for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we will discourse about many things when we have you back next time. <laughs> Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, thanks so much once again for adjudicating people's behavior. (laughs) Thank you. It was awesome to be here with you guys. You're most welcome. And now it's time for the main course where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. So, Rico, fish sandwiches are the new black. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Actually, in my hometown of Pittsburgh, they have always been popular, fish sandwiches. Okay. Yeah, and they're huge, by the way. Like, you have to break the piece of fried fish into thirds and pile the pieces up to fit it on the bun. So you need, like, a baby pool of tartar sauce for that? <laughs> you, do, you don't want to think about it. I kind of do, actually. But, look, fish sandwiches are now having their moment everywhere else outside okay. Pittsburgh. Uh, this week, food writers have been buzzing about the fried fish sandwich at Lake Trout, which is a new restaurant in Brooklyn. Mm. Uh, Mario Batali's restaurant, Italy, now offers an amazing fried skate sandwich. The, these sandwiches are cropping up everywhere. So recently, New York Magazine profiled a half dozen of these kind of new-look fish sandwiches. So I met with Alan Zitzma, the senior editor of their blog Grub Street, and over a fish sandwich from Birdbath Bakery in Soho, I asked him if fish sandwiches were the new hamburger. Nothing will ever be the new hamburger. That's like asking if something will be the new cupcake. It's a, it's a futile question because there will never be anything bigger. But... Maybe like the next fried chicken sandwich. All right, don't get me started on cupcakes. Uh, all right, so it might not be the new hamburger, but as your article points out, it is showing up in all these different restaurants in various forms, right? Well, I think chefs love taking something that everyone enjoys already and chefing it up, you know, kind of adding their take on it, making it an individual, and really approaching something that is traditionally, you know, fast food from kind of a fine dining standpoint, really caring about where your fish comes from, really caring about the temperature of the oil when you fry it, instead of just, you know, a frozen puck of whatever the cheapest fish is on the commodity market, really, you know, caring about it all, treating it like it's it's great food, but then the end result is just this amazing sandwich that you know everyone's going to love. So there's this gourmetification, or chefing it up, as you say, of fish sandwiches going on, but... You know, if you say fish sandwich to most Americans, you know what they're going to say. Well, they're going to say the filet of fish The filet of fish So is McDonald's the trendsetter here? Well, you know, I think if you're a chef and you're opening a restaurant, you'd be a fool not to sort of recognize that the most successful restaurant business model in the history of human race is McDonald's. So you're certainly going to look at them and see maybe what they're doing that works. So do you have any idea why chefs have decided to riff on the fish sandwich now in 2012? I think it's, it's a lot of things coming together. First of all, you can't really get, you know, there are sustainability issues. So tuna, salmon, all those sorts of things. People are concerned about, you know, the depleted resources, the rising costs. So you need to kind of think about what 
resources are out there. You, you know, you look at the ones, especially the ones that we highlighted, and it's really, it, it's not the kinds of fish that you traditionally see. It's a lot of fluke, you know, blue fish to put on this sandwich. You're looking for something that's maybe a little more plentiful and a little more eco-conscious. And with fish, whatever fish you can get, even if it's not, the, you know, the most primo tuna flown in overnight from Tokyo... If you bread it and fry it and slather it with mayonnaise, it's going to be delicious. All right, well, let's stop torturing ourselves. We're, we're sitting here holding sandwiches. One of the sandwiches mentioned in your article from Birdbath Bakery. It's, it's baked, which is unusual for these sandwiches. Yeah, I mean, you know, people have been doing it. You think about shake and bake. People have been kind of trying to recreate the excellence of fried food via baking, which is a little healthier. It's a lot easier for a restaurant to not have huge vats of bubbling oil all the time. And, you know, they do things really well. That's just unique to them. For the most part, what we're seeing is fried fish. All right, so this version's baked. Um, there are lots of different versions. But what, what are the constants? What, what, do you, what are the necessary components of a fish sandwich? I think any fish sandwich has sort of three basic components. There's the fish, obviously, which has to be crusted with something and made crispy somehow. So baking, frying... Those are the two ways to go about it. The bread is an important aspect to any sandwich. And obviously, as this is from a bakery, you know you're getting top quality bread. It's not a bun, which is interesting. It's actually sliced bread in this case. It looks like sourdough, right? Right. And for the most part, we're seeing buns because of the filet of fish uh, And then the third component is the sauce. There has to be some sort of mayonnaise, tartar sauce, whatever, on top of it just slathered all over. After that, it's kind of anyone's game. A lot of people add cheese. American cheese and Velveeta are weirdly popular, which I bet Italians just cringe because... Cheese and fish, not okay. Cheese and fish, you just go nuts. Um, and then, you know, lettuce, tomato, all that stuff. It's it's fine. It's extra. I think it sort of takes away from it. I You know, I like it. It's kind of the lettuce is there for crunch. I mean, let's be honest. Fish sandwiches are basically vehicles for mayonnaise. I think the mayo is really key. Italy, Italy really does it right. At their sandwich, they do it on a roll. Theirs is a fried uh, skate filet on a roll, but they actually yank out all of the inside of the top half of the roll so they can make a pocket for the mayonnaise. It's just waiting. It's like a jelly donut, like waiting to burst. Italy, the Mario Batali restaurant. Right. Mario Batali is famous for a reason, and he knows what people want, and they want mayonnaise. All right, well, let's, uh, let's take a bite of this here. Hmm. Excellent. It's, it's really good. Grub Street's in six cities. You've been covering food for a while. Are you concerned that we're going to run out of comfort food trends? I mean, what's, this is like maybe the last protein frontier here. Where, where else can we go? No, no. See, because you're forgetting the fact that it's all cyclical. So what will happen is, we, you know, it's been a long time since meatloaf's been around. We've got meatloaf coming back. Also, McDonald's is always cranking out something that they can chef up. Now, meatloaf, maybe McDonald's will jump on that. Meatloaf. And then chefs will take it back. Right. So, Rico, it occurred to me later that McMeatloaf nuggets are actually oh, the way man. to go there. Bite-sized, fried, people will love them. That is so true. It, yeah. it makes me sad. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have eaten the latest new old sandwich. Learned some manners from the experts. There's but one thing left for a swell dinner party. Music. Passion Pit is a band originally from Boston, Massachusetts. Their second full-length album, Gossamer, has been eagerly awaited by critics and fans for months. It came out this week, and here's a clip from their song, The Walk.
The Walk from Passion Pit. Here's the band's front man to suggest some other great tunes that sound nothing like that. Hi, my name is Michael Angelakis from Passion Pit, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. The theme for my dinner party is dining with my fiance after being on tour for too long and not calling enough. The first song would be that Cole Porter, You're the Top from Anything Goes, but it's his version of it. It's a demo version from uh, a centennial celebration. My fiance absolutely adores Cole Porter, and I think this is a great example of Cole at his finest. You're the top. You're the you're the top. There's a ridiculous amount of hilarious references and analogies complimenting this one character. You're the nine. You're the tower, Peter. You're the smile on the Mona Lisa. It's upbeat and funny. And she gets her cooking and swaying in the kitchen. Next song uh, would be Now We're Sitting Down to Eat. I put on Henry Mancini, Two for the Road theme song, which it could be the instrumental version or the version with vocals. Two for the Road was a film directed by the awesome Stanley Donen, starring Albert Finney and, and Audrey Hepburn. He did charade as well. This film is more about this tumultuous relationship. I love you. You don't know what love is! I hate you! But I actually love playing Henry Mancini soundtracks in full uh, during um, dinner. I mean, Henry Mancini's a huge influence, but also the emotions that come up when you come home from tour are really weird. The first 24 hours can be kind of rocky, and uh, that's why I think Two for the Road's a great example. There'll never be anyone else like you in my life. You promise? I hope. Well, after that, we've probably um, mended our relationship, <laughs> and uh, we like having a drink afterwards and like a digestif. She'll have maybe some port, or I'll have scotch, and I would play Bobby Short. Anything from his live album uh, at the Carlisle, but as time goes by from Casablanca, because I kind of just wish I was as cool as Humphrey Bogart, and I think Casablanca is one of the best films ever. You must remember this A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply. As time. He's like the vaudevillian cabaret late night cocktail serenader of all time. Bobby Short's live music from the Carlisle is a great, it's a, it's a great playlist in and of itself. You could play that whole album over dinner and it's incredible. And you don't get much more romantic than As Time Goes By. As time goes by. So we just kind of sit around and have our drinks and listen to Bobby Croon, and uh, that pretty much sums up the night. That's a perfect dinner party for me. Woman needs man, and man must have his mate. 
a dinner party soundtrack from Michael Angelakis of the band Passion Pit. Their brand new album, Gossamer, is in stores now. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Jackson Musker is assistant producer of the dinner party. Our interns are Tamika Adams and James Kim. Thanks to Bill Lance, Ravi Carmen, Peter Clowney, Megan Etzel, and our friends at the Public Radio Business Show, Marketplace. Bon appétit. <laughs>